In this episode of the Tech Tidbits podcast, I sit down for a conversation with William Bounce, CEO at Lavender, a real-time email assistant leveraging the power of artificial intelligence, data science, and psychology. Will and I speak about everything from the importance of sales in everyday life to the future of AI within the inbox and the history behind Lavender's rapid pivot from a previous venture in early 2020. If you wish to learn more about the work done by the team at Lavender and how you can get free access to Lavender Pro as a student or job seeker, make sure you listen to the full episode and connect with Will directly via LinkedIn. If you enjoy this conversation, feel free to follow us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts for more episodes on the ubiquity, applicability, and future implications of artificial intelligence and technology as a whole. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Will Balance. To start off, the first question I have is, it seems like you've been working not just from home, but even away from home uh, in an entirely different country. So can you tell us a bit about where you are right now and why you decided to do that? Sure. So I've been working in South Baja, Mexico since October. If you don't know, South Baja, Baja in general is that peninsula on the left of the main part of Mexico under California. Uh, pretty nice. It doesn't rain. It's only rained a couple of times, like three days in a row and no other rain. It's a nice climate. I came down originally in October. Plan was for eight days. One of my friends, she has, uh, her parents have a condo here and right on the beach, really good location. And she invited myself and like seven or eight other founders down, or it's kind of like a mastermind trip. No one really knew each other. And she thought if everyone met in Mexico, it'd be a good networking, fun week together with other founders. And long story short, I, I stayed. So I originally I was gonna stay a few extra days and then that turned into, I was gonna stay an extra month and then that turned into the winter. And then like kind of it progressed and her job needed her back in New York. So we decided to basically house swap where she has access to my apartment in New York, like a FedEx for my keys. And I'm just at her parents' condo in Mexico for the foreseeable future. Is that something that you could see going into the long term? I think so. I think that was one of the most interesting takeaways I had, even in my first week in Mexico, was that I was really nervous about being away from New York, even though our team was fully remote, as you know, because of COVID, I just thought being this, this remote would be, would be a challenge, but it wasn't. And the real test of this was back in late October, early November, Lavender, and I'm sure we'll get into what Lavender is, but it's an, an email assistant that really helps salespeople write better emails. We evolved into an entire platform in my first couple of weeks in Mexico, we launched 10 new features in 10 days, which really elevated our product. And that was a real test of both the remote working environment, but also our team. Can you execute under a very public deadline? Because we had advertised, we're launching one new feature every day for 10 days, so we can't miss a day. And that was a really, really big test. And I think what we learned from that, alongside our full summer internship, which, which you were a part of last summer, where we had a bunch of uh, interns from around the country and even the world working on our project really early on. Um, it really was a test in remote first management, but also remote first startups. And I, I think the takeaway is that wherever people are gonna do their best work, they should be allowed to work from. And for me right now, that's Mexico. Mexico is really good for just being able to focus because there's not a lot of distractions because no one else is here that I know. But for other people that could mean they like working in I don't know, anywhere in the world, really. I, I don't think that 
there's there should be limits as long as people are productive. I think that's the biggest test that we've gone through in the past year and myself included being just embedded into a different culture. Uh, it's been a really good test for the team, but also I think we'll continue that. I mean, if we have great talent that's outside of these major cities, there's no reason that we, we shouldn't work with them. Our entire full-time team with the exception of one is outside of New York. And had we not opened up the, applications to outside of the cities we were based in we never would have met our team and they've been excellent so i'm really pro remote first i mean that makes a lot of sense for sure um and so speaking about lavender let's let's go through the path and not not just where you were before then but the whole path of your interest in entrepreneurship because that's a story that i've never actually heard myself either so i saw that you did it looks like physics business law and ethics and entrepreneurship so a whole range of things. Can you speak about why you chose such a large range of things and how that propelled you into entrepreneurship? Sure. So I majored in government or like political science government, but I did take coursework at Virginia Tech in what you just mentioned, business law, physics, but those weren't my majors. My major was government. Uh, originally, I was going to be a lawyer or something in politics was the plan. But then in college, I just started getting interested more in economics, did all my elective coursework in economics and really interested in, in entrepreneurship. Originally as a way to apply it to government and economic development, I did my senior thesis on microfinance, primarily in Africa, but in other developing areas and using microfinance, which were very small loans. It could be $20 or $50 or even less in some cases to people on the ground floor. I thought that was really interesting as a way to develop economies bottoms up. And the way that works is you could give, typically it's women in Africa, they have the, they have the highest chance of repaying their loans, but you can give them, let's say $10, they can go buy reeds and uh, make baskets then sell baskets and they have a basket business and they start to develop and then they can hire their friends or their family and they provide jobs. And then, you know, over time, they start to develop the economy and prevent a lot of uh, corruption or, or leakage of top-down economic development, like loans or grants from other countries. So that got me into entrepreneurship. And then when I was in college, I did a couple just entrepreneurial things from my dorm room. I had a party promoting business. I was drop shipping electronics online. And then I realized I didn't want to go into law or government. I wanted to work something in entrepreneurship and startups. And after college, I interned for a gentleman who had just retired, he had been senior VP of sales at a big uh, tech company that got bought by Cisco and had some entrepreneurial endeavors. I shadowed him for a while and got my first job working at an e-commerce startup in Atlanta. And that was my first exposure into the real startup world. And then from there, I went and worked at a startup tech company. And then about five years ago, it'd be five years in about a month, I quit my job, took my first leap into entrepreneurship and had a few a few different initiatives around that leading up to what we're doing now at Lavender. So with with the one that you did right before Lavender that was called Sorter, um, can you speak about that? It sort of seemed to bridge a couple different fields uh, in a pretty interesting way, at least when I was looking through it. Sure, I, I might take a step back from that. I think the story and how it connects is pretty interesting. So at my last full-time job, again, I quit about five years ago, I was working at an early stage technology company on their sales team. And while I was there, there's this women's college in Virginia, 
it's called Sweetbriar College. And I had gone to a school really close by. So a lot of my friends had gone to the school. They announced they were going to close. They're having some economic problems. And the alumni group around the school was like rallying up, trying to raise money for the school. So I wanted to help them. And I launched a couple of campaigns to raise funding and awareness for this school closing, which led me to launch my first startup, which was an alumni networking and fundraising app. So this is gonna be relevant in a second. So when I was doing these fundraisers, a lady that I had met was a consultant in Washington for something called the Herman Brain Dominance Instrument, which is this framework for how people make decisions. It essentially says people think through decisions in four quadrants, action, vision, people, and data. And everyone goes into all four of these quadrants when they make decisions, but based on who they are and their personality, essentially, they make their decisions in different orders and magnitudes. So some people are really, really data-driven. They wanna get into all the details, but maybe, maybe they don't have like the big grand picture. And the inverse is true. People might have a really big vision, but they might not go into the, like the details and all the research of whatever it is that they're thinking about. So this was something I got introduced to in this fundraiser. Then when I launched my first app, there were two schools that I was trying to sell to. And one of them said they would buy, but only if they could talk to other customers. They needed more data from people. And then another school said, we'll buy, but only because we want to be the very first people to have your software. So they're more of the vision, action dominant in their decision-making. I thought that was really fascinating. And I was curious, like, could I figure out a way to use a prospect's online data to figure out, are they gonna be more of the ones that are vision oriented? They're gonna be the early adopters and kind of move forward with their gut, which was what I needed when I was trying to sell this very, very early software to schools. Or would the people be more the data-driven people? They might need more proof points in making their decision. So I was marinating on this idea. I wasn't quite sure how to actually build it, but around the same time, there was research coming out of University of Cambridge on using online data to predict personality types. So I had this nugget of an idea, and the idea was to take a database of prospective customers aggregate their online data and make a prediction on their personality type. And we could use the prediction of their personality type to figure out or infer what is the dominant quadrant they're gonna make their decisions off of. So the idea for what was Sorter was to take a customer list, predict their personality, and then based on their personality, give them different types of experiences targeted to how they would think through decisions. So for example, if you're a more data-driven person, then the messaging you might get might include a white paper or more graphs or charts or more data and proof points to help you make your decision. But if you're a more action-oriented person, giving you a white paper would just be too much information. And in many cases, they wouldn't read it and it would just, you would lose the sales. So that was the idea behind Sorter. And we met, or my co-founder and I met at a Techstars weekend competition. We won the competition. And after that competition, Will, my co-founder, quit his job the next day. I shut down my fledgling alumni fundraising app, and we started building this product, Sorter. That's really interesting because um, obviously Lavender also touches on a lot of those points, but sticking <laughs> with Sorter for a minute. So the, you spoke about these four different quadrants and their relevance to you know personality types breaks down into oftentimes categorized as the big five i believe summarized yes. by the ocean acronym so how did how do, how would that work like what sort of data would you look to collect and how would that allow you to fit them into uh, first um, those first five traits and then one of those four quadrants and did you find that you needed more than just those four or were they generally sufficient 
That's a good question. So we were, you were right in that we were using Ocean or the big five, the five factor personality model, which is according to the psychology community and personality psychologists, that is the most scientifically valid form of testing for personality. So Myers-Briggs, Enneagram, et cetera, are not the ones that actual mainstream psychologists use. They use the big five. And if your audience is interested, we have the five-factor ocean model online at officialpersonalitytest.com. They can figure out their personality from that website. And what we did internally was we worked with one of our advisors who's a PhD in psychology and basically built a model that would identify personality traits and then predict which of those four quadrants someone would fall into. So just for some quick background, the big five or the ocean model, ocean stands for openness, like your openness to new experiences. C stands for conscientiousness, which is like your task orientation, how responsible essentially you are, you do your work, you're detail-oriented. Um, extroversion or introversion, agreeableness, you're kind of tending to go along with the flow and then neuroticism or how prone you are to stress essentially or emotional swings and personalities comprise across those five factors. You're on like a scale of zero to hundred essentially across all five and that comprises your personality. So the way we actually built the model was we had a core data set of people who had taken a personality assessment and we had a bunch of data on them. So in the most simple way of explaining it, we would take net new user, someone who we've never seen before, see their data, their data footprint, and compare it to people that we had accurate personality predictions on, and then make a prediction that they're likely with some degree of confidence to fall around a similar personality type as that person. And it worked. Like we could see in marketing campaigns over 40% increase in, in conversions. Um, we started building some technology that would also analyze marketing copy. So what do you actually say to those people? We'd analyze Facebook campaigns or email campaigns, for example, and try to predict the right messaging for each of these audiences. And as we moved the conversation into what we're working on now, Lavender, a lot of the core of Lavender is actually born from the technology we'd originally built for, for marketers. Uh, we would begin to look for linguistic variables in in ad copy or ad messaging and figure out these types of things work really well for these types of people. And that was the core of the, what was going to become the sorter content creator essentially, but COVID happened, uh, people stopped investing in marketing and we started repurposing some of the technology we've been building for marketing into a different use case, which was one-to-one -one emails in the inbox. And that eventually born birth what we're working on now which is lavender that's a really interesting story and so the transition from sorter to lavender was sparked by covid um and you mentioned that marketing sale, uh, marketing went down uh corresponding with that why did you believe that lavender would be the right move during covid did you believe that that decrease in marketing would be um balanced out by an increase in like personal inbox emails or how did you sort of square that I'd love to say that this was some like well thought out decision, uh, but it wasn't. Going back to those four quadrants, I think I definitely lean more into that vision quadrant. So we had we had a hunch basically this is going to work. Um, there wasn't a lot of underlying detail or data to support that decision, but we knew one thing was true. We were building a marketing product. We were about to release it, and then COVID happened. We lost the handful of customers that we had testing the early early version. We had just done a case study, 
where we doubled return on ad spend for uh, for a client of ours. And even they backed out because as soon as COVID started taking hold, there was so much uncertainty. No one was investing in Facebook ads. The companies we had in our pipeline, meaning that they were about to become clients, they all backed out. They're not making new investments. So we essentially had a marketing technology when the world stopped investing in marketing. And as an early stage company, we didn't have a ton of runway, runway meaning like cash in the bank to fund the business to, to weather however long COVID could potentially happen. We had no idea how long it would last. But we did have two assets that were at our disposal. We had this new writing technology that we had just built to analyze marketing copy. And we had data on people that we were using to make personality predictions. So our team, our founders were together randomly in New York and we read a TechCrunch article that LinkedIn was shutting down LinkedIn Sales Navigator for Gmail. And the background on that, LinkedIn Sales Navigator for Gmail would show you LinkedIn data in the sidebar of Gmail on people you were emailing. It used to be a company called Reportive that LinkedIn acquired several years ago. And Reportive in its early days would show you all social data on the people you were emailing, their Twitter, their Facebook, whatever it was. When LinkedIn bought them, they stripped it down to only show LinkedIn data. So originally the idea for Lavender was like, let's just so show people social data on the people they're emailing and replace this gap that LinkedIn is removing from this the, the toolkit that many people are using. And then we thought, well, these people are gonna be in their inbox. They're gonna be sending emails. What if we tweaked the algorithm we had built for marketing copy and replaced it in a way that worked for one-to-one -one emails? The original plan was not even, not even for it to be its own business. We thought it's just a side project. We thought it could help people that were losing their jobs due to COVID. We thought potentially it would generate some side revenue for us and help us keep the business going and get through COVID. But what actually happened was the response that people were giving us, even our earliest of users, our first 10 users or so, were just were so different than the, the psychology marketing product we had built. Although we could prove effectiveness with the psychology marketing product, some of the things that we heard were that it was like too complicated, it was too scientific, and we, we built it to be very, very simple. But the idea of, of we're applying neuroscience and psychology to marketing, having to even understand what that meant was a little bit too much work for many of the people we were targeting. But Lavender was something that people could install it. And on the very first email they were sending, Lavender would assist them and help them with their email. So the feedback we were getting was that we're getting value on the very first first time we're using Lavender. It's super simple to use. And it was funny because on the back end, a lot of the technology was the same, but it was just repackaged in a way that was felt much more user-friendly and much more immediately applicable versus having to run entire marketing campaigns with the technology we've been building previously. That's amazing because it like it does it definitely sounds like there's a lot of similarity. It sounds like there's a lot of underlying natural language processing happening between both mm -hmm. of them and, and your ability to reposition that but still maintain a lot of what you took is obviously super impressive. Um, so I guess we still haven't gone into this, but can you explain just the elevator pitch of what Lavender actually is? Yeah, for sure. So Lavender is a real-time AI-driven email assistant that helps users write emails that get more replies and do that about 30% faster. The primary use case that people are using it for are for sales emails, but in reality, in life, most things are a sale in some way, whether you're trying to find a job or an internship or whatever, or you're even trying to do customer success and keep a customer from leaving your company. Everything is in some way a sale. So we have users who are using the product for many, many things. People are writing marketing newsletters. They're writing ad copy. We had a user who 
was giving a speech to the Washington DC city council that wrote their speech in lavender, not the intended use case, but it worked. And lavender is just really there as a, a helpful tool for anyone who wants to write an email that gets a reply. So they want the recipient to take some sort of action and lavender guides them through that process, makes, shows them information on the people they're emailing, helps them write the email, makes sure they're, they're within best practices. And essentially if they follow the guidelines of the email assistant, they will, double their response rate and essentially have the best chance of getting a reply based on the data of what tends to get a reply in emails. And just to end that, I think you're right in that there are a lot of similarities between what we're building with Lavender for one-to-one -one emails and what we're building at Sorter for one-to-many marketing messaging. And it ties back to what we've been trying to do since day one as a company, and it's just taking different folds. But at our core, what we do as a company is we apply psychology to communication. We're a psychology communication company. And our first swing at that was in marketing communication. And now it's in one-to-one -one sales email communication. But at its core, it's psychology and communication combined with AI and data science. That makes a lot of sense. And I think that the difference, at least like even for me, when I first used Lavender, what I noticed right off the bat was it was more than just, you know, punctuation, which is a lot of, or, or grammar, which is a lot of what the other competitors seem to be doing, um, which is important, of course. But at the end of the day, if you miss, if you miss a capitalization, that's not nearly as important as the general tone of your email. So um, to, to that extent, what was the initial, was that what you believed was your competitive advantage at the beginning? Because, you know, uh, we did a lot of research. There was a lot of competitors in the market. How did you see Lavender standing out amongst all of those? And how did you see that vision carrying forward into the future? It's a great question. The, there's a couple of things to unpack there. One, how are we different from more spelling and grammar focused companies like Grammarly, who we don't personally consider a competitor, but people that are unfamiliar with us may consider as a competitor. And how is our unique way of doing things either equal or superior to other companies that are doing adjacent or similar things? So with spelling and grammar in particular and, and Grammarly, and by the way, Lavender now has spelling and grammar built in and we do a few other things. We look for wrong dates and misspelled names, but the difference is what optimizes for a conversion. So the average salesperson is likely in their early twenties or coming out of school and by no fault of their own, they've been trained for several years to write for school and writing for school means you're writing formally, you're writing research papers, you might have a page limit you're trying to hit. So you say things longer than you potentially should just to hit your word count. And then those that training of how you've been writing for several years, you take that to your first job. So these entry-level salespeople are writing long emails. They're writing formal emails. They're writing like they're writing for their teacher, their professor. That's not what works in the real world. And Grammarly and how we compare against it is a really good example. One of my friends, he runs an app development company and he sent me his new landing page. And I was going through it and there was one part of the text that really stood out to me as being super long and super wordy. And I sent it to him and he said, well, Grammarly said it was good. And it was true, it was grammatically correct, but that one sentence took up five lines on the screen. It's way too long. It's like a paragraph on its own. So while it was grammatically correct, it's not what's optimized for how people read through marketing or sales copy. When you get an email, you're likely opening it on your phone. In fact, you're eight times more likely to open it on your phone. 
every single line that you write on a computer takes up at least two lines on the phone. People aren't reading e emails word by word or line by line. They're looking at it and quickly scanning it. So these sorts of things, Grammarly's not looking for. You can have a very grammatically correct email, but it doesn't mean it's optimized for how people are reading. So I think that's one of the things that we tie in that a lot of other companies aren't is that we're applying this lens of the social sciences, behavioral science and psychology, along with the computer sciences from AI and data science, and then combining that with just writing correctly, which is more of what the Grammarly would do. But there's so much more to it when you're thinking about how do I write for conversion or write for how people communicate. Lavender would not be a tool you'd want to use to write your essays, where Grammarly would be. But Lavender is a tool you'd want to use to write to land a job or make a sale or work any sort of professional emails. For sure. And I can attest to that. I've definitely, there's been instances where I've wanted to send someone a cold message on LinkedIn. I've thrown it into my Gmail, checked it through Lavender mm -hmm. first and then sent it out. Um, That's great. But I think that like the way you, you've said it is really insightful because it seems like unlike a lot of companies, Lavender shows what can happen when you integrate um, hard sciences with social sciences, with all these different areas in a more sort of comprehensive manner, um, which is really interesting. And I think something that will likely uh, bear a lot more value in the future as people become a lot more multifaceted rather than just good at one single thing for their whole life. Um, but to, to, to focus on your point about recruiting, actually, I guess, um, there are obviously a lot of, like you said, sales is almost something that we do in every aspect of our life because we're always selling ourselves. We're always negotiating with people, even if it's not uh, formally so. Um, so obviously a lot of our audience is students. And I assume that a lot of the rules that occur in a regular sales conversation can apply to, you know, cold emailing and recruiting as well. Um, so could you tell us, and you've already broken this down a little bit, but what are some of the bigger mistakes people make when sending a cold email, perhaps in the context of a recruiter or just in general even? It's a, a, great, a great question. So one thing I do want to say to the audience is we started off Lavender trying to help people get jobs and it evolved into a sales technology company. And there are a lot of similarities and we'll do, go into that in a second, but we have always and still do offer Lavender Pro to students and the unemployed for free. So if you're a student and you wanna use Lavender, just email us team at trylavender.com. Once you install it, we'll upgrade your account. You have it for free until you graduate and land your first job, no questions asked. We don't, you know, just please use it and it, it will help you. A lot of people have landed jobs or internships from using our tool. And really because Lavender is a way to think through writing that you're not going to have coming out of college. It's very unlikely you have enough professional experience or professional writing experience to understand the nuances of what tends to get a positive reply in email. And some of the stuff seems obvious, like write an email that's friendly or write an email that's concise, but actually getting your point across in a concise way is really challenging. Um, there's like a quote I'm probably butchering. It's like, I would have written a shorter, I would have written something shorter if I had more time or something like that. So the idea is that to write something to the point and concise while still being 
friendly and not cold is somewhat of a challenge and, and Lavender helps with that. Even seasoned professionals aren't actively thinking about should my email be mobile optimized? It's something that people don't really think about natively. But there's a lot of other stuff in Lavender that, that really benefits this sort of, sort of writing outside of just the pure cold sales situation. Although to that point, most things in life are a sale. It's one of the things I was taught really early on by one of my first bosses. I think his example was, uh, everything in life is a sale. If you're trying to go on a date with somebody, like you're selling yourself, if you're trying to negotiate for a car, a car discount or something, it's a sale. Everything is a sale and it boils down to it. If you're trying to get the other person to take some sort of action, and that could be landing a job or an internship or even getting your professor to, to do something that you'd like, maybe give you an extension or something like that. So the commonalities here, especially with writing, is that you want to have empathy for the reader. And that's what a lot of Lavender is actually forcing people to do is have empathy for how the reader is going to consume their content. So a lot of the emails that I receive, especially from younger sales reps, they talk a lot about their product. It's really long. They want to tell me every little thing their product does in this email. And by the time it's done, it takes a minute or two minutes or three minutes to read their message where the optimal time for someone to take to read your email is under 14 seconds. That's like under 100 words. So how do you get this entire, your entire point across in a way that's going to take them less than 14 seconds to read and still have a good experience with it? A lot of other things that we're seeing, especially from younger, younger employees that are just getting used to professional writing and aren't really as comfortable dealing with executives as you will be once you've had a few years of experience, is they write emails that are unsure. So they aren't completely confident in themselves. Even the way they ask questions, it's not the most confident way of asking things. There's a sense of doubt in their tone of voice. Lavender looks for 23 emotions in language and unsure is one of those. And Lavender can suggest more confident sentences. So it instantly with two clicks can rewrite your sentence and make you a more confident writer. It can rewrite your long sentences and suggest shorter, more concise, more impactful sentences. It can take your stuffy formal email and in a couple of clicks, turn that formal sentence into a casual, friendly, conversational sentence. So Lavender really can help with a lot of things, um, but not the least of which being helping you land a job or write an email to a recruiter. That's super interesting. Yeah. And I think perhaps the most interesting thing with what you just said is this idea of shifting from analysis to actual creation, which is something that, you know, you've been able to do through um, use of OpenAI's GPT-3 model. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so I think that that's super interesting because, you know, a lot of the times we think of AI, the enterprise level right now, it's mostly used for forecasting, analytics, things like that. Very rarely do we see it used to actually create something new and so when I saw that demo on your LinkedIn with uh, with the KD technology, I was pretty pretty blown away. And I actually saw Will do it again today at, a, at an Atlanta mm -hmm. show, which was cool. Do you want to talk a bit about that particular feature and other ways that Lavender uses AI? Sure. So Lavender embeds technology from a company called OpenAI. It was started in part by Elon Musk. And they have a product called GPT-3, which is as of today, one of, if not the most cutting edge language creation technologies where it's spent years training itself on the internet and can essentially generate, generate new sentences or new language based on simple commands. Some people have used it to write blog posts, to write marketing copy. 
we're using it to write emails. So the thesis behind it is you're trying to get through your inbox faster. You don't necessarily need to think through what to say. A lot of times people get analysis paralysis and they're stuck, they have writer's block. So you just tell our software, it's in beta today, a few simple commands. For example, schedule a meeting with John on Tuesday. And Lavender, this feature of Lavender, we call it Katie. Katie's our internal AI. It can create that rough draft. And if I gave it a command like schedule a meeting with John for Tuesday, it would do that, but it would also add in some of that filler text, that nicety text like, hey, John, hope you're doing well. Um, things like that, that you don't necessarily need to write, but it's more, it's like, it's the common courtesy that goes into professional writing. Lavender does that. And it can do the more advanced things than that. Like I, I've used it to make product announcements. When I made the email to announce this new feature to our users, I had it write the announcement for itself, basically. And we're doing a lot as this expands. So on the back end, some of the things that we're starting to learn about is when one of our users emails someone else, does that person respond positively or negatively? And over time, this will allow us to essentially use AI to generate the perfect email for the precise person that one of our users goes to send a message to, but we're still building toward that end goal. That's obviously super cool. And actually, um, as part of our Western AI club, we, we looked into open or uh, open AI's, uh, GPT three model, because they're also doing uh, a lot of work in the video game space. There's a company mm -hmm. called latitude. They have a game called AI dungeon. Essentially it's an infinite video game. Uh, the storyline's infinite. It's a text-based video game and it just uses this, uh, technology to essentially create a cool. plot that goes along with what you're saying. One of the challenges they did notice with that though, like you said, because the model is trained on the internet, there's a lot of great things on the internet and a lot of not so great things on the internet. So um, they've obviously found issues with racism, sexism, other biases that are inherent when you go scrape Reddit or any of these other mass platforms. So how have you been able to tackle that as a company that at the forefront is focused on emotional intelligence in writing? That's a great question. I think it's one of the problems that a lot of AI companies have to think about and have to deal with. Uh, inclusivity in, in AI is a, a big topic right now, especially when AI is being trained on data sources of the internet, which many, many corners of the internet can be a little toxic to say the least. Fortunately for us, this isn't something that we have come across in our use case because of the commands that people are putting in. Like it's not generating a never ending fantasy game, for example, or storyline. It's generating sales emails that are focused on scheduling meetings or booking demos or booking phone calls. So it's a very narrowed use case. And we've trained all of the models and built the models in GPT-3 just for that use case. So it's not straying too far from it. Some of the more relevant challenges that we face is GPT-3 only knows about the things on the internet up until the day it was essentially created. So sometimes it will mix up the type of company that you are from or what your product does. It might get confused on that. And sometimes just pulls in complete randomness and you're like, what is this? This makes no sense. It's why it's still in beta in our product. But some of the stuff that we're doing internally to help it along is we tell GPT-3 about our user. So what their company does, what product they're selling. So GPT-3 has that context. 
and we've specifically built the different prompts that we use in GPT-3 around our core use case. So it's really for, for salespeople. Um, that said, we also process what GPT-3 returns to us through our own, our own algorithms. So we can tell, has GPT-3 returned something that's aggressive or angry or something like that? We can filter that out and rerun the, the prompt if needed. However, that's not actually been a situation we face, but it's one we've talked about and are prepared for if it were to happen. But so far, the biggest problem we've had with GPT-3 is just introducing a lot of randomness that may or may not make sense. Not so much the toxicity part, fingers crossed. Yeah, for sure. And I, I guess it definitely also depends on what you're asking it to create um, as you mm -hmm, brought up. Totally. Um, and, and yes, the point with this idea, as um, Sam Altman, one of the founders of OpenAI says, is that one of the shortfalls of GPT-3 is that it lacks, it just lacks a semantic understanding of language itself. It's almost, this might be a, a bit harsh, but it's almost like a, a, a um, the highest level autocomplete that there's ever been, because at the end of the day, it still is, you know, just predicting what the next best word is. Um, but certainly, you know, it, it seems to be working great so far. What are the, the next steps with that? How do you rely on a system like that, where there is that level of randomness? Is it just a matter of continually training on the data that you're getting? Just to know about that. It's a good question. I, I think one of the things that excites me about what we're doing at Lavender and the space that we're in is the, the field of AI and specific, specifically natural language processing, it's quickly evolving. And in some ways we're at the forefront of it and that we're using the latest technologies, but it's also still really in its infancy. GPT-3, for it to be the most advanced autocomplete ever, is really, really impressive. It's not perfect, but most things are not, and it's still really young. So it's just gonna get better. And alongside that, other teams outside of OpenAI are working on similar things. We're architecting internally ways of doing some of the things GPT-3 is doing, but specifically for our use case and building that internally. So I think what they've really done is open up the field to allow teams to keep innovating it. They've really proven that this is something that can work. As we think about the future of it, it's more about getting precise. So right now, GPT-3 can generate these, these generic emails. Maybe they're fine-tuned to a specific situation like schedule a meeting, but we want to get one step further and understand the context and the situation that our user is in. So in the sales situation, maybe it's the first email they've received. Maybe they've gotten an, an objection, which means the person said no for some reason. So we want GPT-3 to understand that this prospect, meaning a prospective customer, has said no, and they've said no for this reason, and also provide it with all the detail on what that or who that person is, what that person likes, what their company does, and then amass this information to essentially have GPT-3 craft the correct response for that situation for the specific individual that our user is talking to, not have it based on just write a generic email to whoever. So as we think about as we continue to build alongside the GPT-3 technology, it's more about using the core results that GPT-3 gives, but then combining it with the unique data that Lavender has internally to make the output from GPT-3 so much more relevant, so much more precise and beneficial to our users. I mean, that's obviously super interesting, especially the idea of just, you know, taking, really getting it down to the level of the individual rather than just generalizing. Um, but I do want to switch gears a little bit and just talk about the overarching idea of 
entrepreneurship and its um, flourishment in lavender so far. One of the ways I see that really manifesting itself is through, like you spoke about this 10 features in 10 days. When I saw that, I was like, that's obviously insane. Most people are happy if they get one feature every couple of months. That's how teams generally work. So um, at a high level, just how were you able to, not just for that, but in general, develop so quickly? Is it a function of um, the startup environment itself as opposed to you know a company like Grammarly that hasn't done nearly as much innovation if you look at where they were last year to now? Or is it a function of the team members or just everything as a whole? So there's no way that I or we would be anywhere without our team. And last summer you were part of that, John. So I think you understand. My co-founders are excellent, Will and Casey. And I definitely would not be having this interview or having Lavender had it not been for my co-founders and our team. But outside of that, I think what really set us up for the moderate success that we've had, I wouldn't call it a success yet, but I think we have a lot of things going for us that hopefully will turn into a success is a culture that we instilled in the very beginning. So we had this, this really large intern class last summer and it was perfect timing for us because of COVID. Many, many top applicants, yourself included, had opportunities at other types of organizations or companies and they lost their opportunities because of COVID. And we had originally thought we're gonna bring on one intern just to help us out but then we said, what if we just posted an internship ad for everything that we need, everything from market research to user interface design to AI and natural language processing. And we ultimately had over 20 interns in our intern class working with us, some of them finishing up their master's degrees in AI. Some of them already had finished their master's and were full-time engineers that had lost their job because of COVID. And they came and worked with us and they've gone on to do excellent things. Two of the data scientists working on our team originally are now working at Apple. But when we started the product, we had a, an angel investor. He was our eighth beta user. He funded us for three months to pivot from our marketing technology into Lavender. So going into that internship class, everyone knew we had essentially three months to build the product and get it to market, or we were not going to get more funding and we go out of business. So there was like a really, really set deadline that we had to hit. And everyone was like all full steam ahead, moving quick to make sure we did not go out of business. And once we finished that summer, we had our first kind of early version of the product. We were figuring out that salespeople were the best market to go after. There's many use cases for the product, but salespeople are the ones that started to adopt it. They were talking about it on their social media. And in, from a business standpoint, sales teams typically have larger headcount and also larger budgets in other parts of the organization. So likely it's the most lucrative market to go after to start. So when we realized that we were becoming a sales tech product, we drew back some of the experiences that I had as a salesperson, some of the things that I did that were effective but inefficient. We started productizing them and making them part of Lavender. And that's why this 10 days, 10 features scenario came out was we wanted to bring our product from simple email analysis up into a, a sales tech platform. So this was the next test of speed. We set a really ambitious goal of launching 10 features in 10 days. It was very public because we announced it and it, was, uh, it required everyone in the company, very small company, but everyone in the company to work really well together. So UI and UX had to do the designs, front end and back end engineering, Will and I out there promoting it, the graphic designer creating the marketing assets. And this really, uh, 
at least in my opinion, set us up for the pace that we have continued to have up until today. That first three month timeline was the first part of it. And then that 10 days, 10 features was really the next, like you've got a very short deadline. A lot has to be done. We've got to execute flawlessly. And the team's just kept with that. The, the pace that we started with has just continued on. I think it's so ingrained in the culture of the startup. And we're fortunate that the team that we have is really invested in the product and really want to see it as a success. And they think we've got a great opportunity. So everyone does the weight of 10, 10 others. Like they're working really hard. So I owe it a lot to them. But I, I do think that the early ways that we pace the product development have, has lasted. It's been a long lasting part of the culture. Yeah, I mean, having been a part of that myself, it was obviously I worked I worked at a couple of places last summer, a couple of different young startups and Lavender stood out because not only were they um, the most ambitious and probably one of the harder tasks uh, from an intern perspective in terms of the amount of things that we had to do, but because of that, they were also the most fulfilling. And so when we think about, um, you know, corporations like big corporations nowadays really trying to get their employees to buy in. Um, companies like Google and all these big tech companies, they give free meals, they incentivize their employees to stay as long as possible. Um, Lavender, obviously, at least right now, doesn't do any of that. So how do you get that level of buy-in and commitment within your team? I want to preface my, my, my answer with we're only a year old. So as far as answering for the long term, can't fully answer that yet. But I will say compared to a Google or a company like that, we're not giving the, the big salaries. Our team admittedly is underpaid. They could make more working other places. They don't get the perks that you would get at Google. What they get is ownership and they can see the product. The things that they're doing today have massive impact on the product literally tomorrow. And I, we always try to give them credit like on and give them the, the shout out on social media when we release new things. And if you're at a big company, you're not going to get that. You're going to get a lot of perks. You're going to get a larger salary, but you're going to be building small parts of a much, much larger machine. So our employees, like our team, they're relatively young. If they're working at a Google, maybe they're fixing some, some bugs or doing something very incremental in the behemoth that Google is, where at Lavender, they have meaningful oversight and can change the direction of the product for thousands of people that are using Lavender. So I think that's the biggest thing. And it also goes back to the, those four quadrants of decision-making. Some people are gonna be more comfortable with the stability of a large organization and they don't really need that ownership. They just wanna be stable and that's fine. But then you have other people that gravitate to the startup world. It's riskier. There's not a lot of stability. You've gotta be very agile. You're doing lots of different tasks and you, it's not enough time to really be coddled. You got to like kind of pick things up on the fly and do a lot of things. Maybe you're underqualified for myself included, but the trade-off is you have a lot of autonomy. You're not being micromanaged and you have a lot of say into what actually goes into production. And I think that's why certain types of people are, they gravitate towards startups. Coming out of college, that was really what it was for me. I knew I could go work at a more established company and make more money. But that wasn't what was important. What was important to me was working with smart people, learning, and having a lot of ability to change the direction of the company I was working for. So I think that's how you get buy-in. You give people responsibility in a way that helps them 
grow as individuals, but also they have like a stake, they have a vested interest in helping your products succeed. Even with our interns, I mean, we didn't think of our interns as their interns in college, at least in my opinion, we looked at all the interns, like these are really intelligent people. They can do the work of people 10 years older than them. So let's, let's have them work on those types of projects. And from what we hear, everyone had a pretty fulfilling experience and went on to do really amazing things. Yeah, I can, I've definitely seen a lot of the people who I worked with last summer go on to do just that. Um, and I want to focus in quickly on, on your particular role as the CEO of Lavender, because at least from what it looked like last summer and more generally in the startup space, the CEOs of startups tend to almost assume the role of like a product manager that you might see at a bigger company. They have to balance um, coordination with the engineering team on technical feasibility with business, business feasibility, design, and all of that. So as someone who, as you said, worked um, towards a degree in government primarily, how are you able to communicate within all those teams and get that level of collaboration that a lot of PMs tend to struggle with? I can't speak for other project managers or their experiences, but for myself, I think one of the things that I'm fortunate for from, from my background is I've got a pretty, I guess, diverse set of things that I dabbled in when I was younger, even majoring in government. My school was a liberal arts school, so I was taking classes in all sorts of disciplines, art history, Western culture, um, and that all ties together. You, I didn't really, I focused on government as a major, but what I learned in college was how to think through problems in an interdisciplinary way. And also as a child, I was exposed to programming at a pretty young age. I, it's kind of crazy how this all comes back into play decades later, but the summer between fifth and sixth grade, I got invited to a summer program that my school system put on and we learned HTML. So I, was, I made a little website for my soccer team and that got me interested in computers and, and things like that. And I made a website for myself when I was in middle school. I started programming on my TI-83 calculator. So your text-based game brings back a lot of memories. And if I made a website for myself, now I need to make graphics for my website. So I taught myself Photoshop. I was really interested in this video game um, at the time from Blizzard. And part of that game was this chatting element. So I learned, I was like in eighth grade, people were making chat bots for this game. I was fascinated by it. So I wanted to learn how to make those. And I taught myself Visual Basic, which is a programming language. And then in high school, I learned Java, PHP, other languages. And I, I don't program anymore. I wanted to, I, was, I went to school to be a lawyer originally. So I kind of, those kind of I stopped doing the programming, but I was wired in my brain from a very young age to understand at least the basics of architecting software, websites, learning design. So when you fast forward 15 years or so, and now I'm having to work with engineers and designers, I understand that at least at some rudimentary level where I can speak their language and I can go in between the, the two departments. And I have an understanding at least to a basic degree of how long things are going to take or how complicated things are. So I can start to forecast, okay, well, engineering things is gonna take a day, but it's gonna probably actually take four days and start to, in my mind, map out how the product is going to progress. And we tie that in with me having been a sales rep where I experienced the pain point that we're solving. And a lot of the things that we're doing are things that 
I figured out that worked in sales and I did it myself and we're kind of productizing those things. So I have that unique blend of, I had this problem. I was our ideal user at an earlier point in my career. And I have at least a lightweight background in software development and design. So I can tie all those things together to, to manage the team. And also my very first job, another benefit or asset of working at a startup, I was the, the second hire at my first company. So despite me being like 21 years old, 22 years old, every person they hired after me was by default, I was managing them. So I was managing, I was hiring people, firing people, managing a team of 10 people or so. And I was like 21 years old, just because I was so early on at that company. So I got a lot of experience doing all sorts of things, running our email marketing, running our customer success, running our sales, just because I was so early at my first job that all of those skill sets, I'm not an expert in any of them, but I've got enough experience in each of them where you can tie it all together and I can manage the project from a really, from a few different angles, I guess, from these varied experiences throughout my life. That's super interesting because it seems like nowadays, you know, with people jumping from career to career, there's this idea of the jack of all trades, master of none. But in your instance, it seems like that that's been more of a benefit than anything else because you have context and domain knowledge in all these different areas and you've been able to tie that together. Um, like we said, in the way that Lavender does, it doesn't seem like many other people do. So I read your blog post about the history of email. Um, it was pretty interesting how it's evolved and uh, since, well, the past decade, how little it has evolved um, from the earlier days. So I'm curious to know what you think and what the team at Lavender thinks the, the future of email is in a um, couple of years down the road, a couple of decades down the road. Um, my opinion on the future of email, I, it's really interesting because I remember I was like in college, so almost 10 years ago, and I remember thinking one day, what is the future of email? Like, how can you possibly innovate on email? And I thought like that was just a massive thing. Like who's going to figure out what the next version of email is. And it's kind of funny because our users now say things like this is going to change email forever. We had a really big influencer in sales tech the other day called lavender email 2.0. So now I, I'm, we, we are the ones that are creating the next version of email and at least in our specific use case, I think what's going to happen is AI is going to take a bigger, a bigger place in email, but let's expand past email and just say written communication in general. And I think I'll get to a point where my AI can talk to your AI and we'll have enough context to figure out what that outcome is going to be. This could be an email. This could be in social situations. Imagine like take dating apps, for example, written communication where a lot of context and stuff is, is, is necessary. You can imagine that my AI could chat with someone's AI on like a dating app and figure out, are we a good match and set up that meeting. And that's something that my first boss and I talked about like 10 years ago. And now it seems like that is something that's actually possible because Lavender right now is working on technology with the assistance of GPT-3 where we can write that first touch email using AI and we're working on writing replies as well. So let's imagine we have two Lavender users emailing each other. Lavender writes that first touch outbound. Lavender writes the reply with AI and you keep progressing upon that and AI is having the conversation for you. And that can eventually get to a point where the AI can determine, is this the right fit for this organization? If so, let's set up a meeting. 
or set up a phone call or even close the deal, I think that that's a really realistic outcome. And in many ways, especially in our use case, it removes a lot of the day-to-day -day work for an entry-level salesperson. Like instead of them spending all their day writing emails, they can focus on other things that are revenue generating, like making phone calls or, or research or whatever the other activities might be. So in some ways we're replacing a lot of the, the, the job of our user. I don't think we're replacing our user, but we're replace, like replacing their job. But I think we're replacing a lot of the things, the more monotonous things that they go through each day. So I think that's where the future of AI and communication is going to go. Just more hands-off, more context, and getting to a point where it can make decisions for its, um, I don't want to say, for its owner, I guess, the person managing that software based on what works for them and what doesn't work for them. I was having a conversation with a software engineer at Waymo, obviously self-driving mm -hmm. cars and uh, with truck driving being such a huge profession in North America, there's a lot of implications for what that does to the job market. And he brought up a similar sentiment of, you know, it's this idea of augmenting a job rather than replacing it, um, which is interesting because, you know, obviously, as you said, sales is not just about writing emails. It's also about speaking to people. And yet, uh, I can't remember when this was, but recently there was a, a AI that passed the Turing test in the sense that it was able to communicate with people and they didn't know that it was, um, it didn't know mm -hmm. that it was a machine talking to them. And so I'm wondering if you see, like in what ways you see um, AI augmenting the role of a salesperson. We've heard, we've heard how that applies to people in transportation or elsewhere, but particularly in the sales specific role, you mentioned a bit about it, taking more time speaking to people. Um, but in general, how do you see AI alleviating that? And do you see it, um, in a recent McKinsey report actually said that 40% of the average business sales reps work could be performed by a machine with current technology alone. So do you think the sales role will become redundant eventually? Um, or do you think they're merely more optimized and efficient? It's a great question. And I think we could talk about that question for a long time. There are a few interesting macro events that are happening in, in my opinion, around how people make buying decisions. And right now people get most of their business through the phone. And email is like that secondary thing that they do alongside the phone. I think that's gonna change as more millennials and Gen Z move into decision-making roles and they're more phone averse or even not phone averse, there's more used to doing things in text or even just doing their own research. Um, I love when I get a really well-targeted software ad on Instagram and I can go look at it on my own, make my own decision. And if I think it's worthwhile, I'll reach out and do a demo. I think that's what's going to happen. And AI can really help augment that experience a lot. I'll leave potential for AI augmenting phone conversations aside. It's not my specialty, but we see what Google's doing using AI to book appointments and things. So I think there is some going to be some innovation there on the sales side, of course. But when it comes to email, AI can really augment that sales rep's job and make them so much more both efficient, but also effective. There was a poll that came out recently that the average SDR spends over 15 minutes to write a personalized email. 
doesn't seem like that much time. And if the deal closes, that definitely is worth the time investment. But if you're sending 50 emails a day or more, like that really starts to add up. And a large part of that is the research where AI should be able to, even basic AI can just figure out what's relevant to the person you're emailing and insert that personalization for you or do the research for you. We're working on some of that right now. It's not even AI. It's just, if you're going to email a certain company, we can go look on the web and see, are there recent news events for this company? Have they raised funding? Are they making a lot of hires? These are things that would be really relevant to a salesperson on a reason to reach out or depending on what they're selling, like knowing that they're making a bunch of hires in, in their engineering team could be really relevant. So I think that's one of the first things that we'll start seeing the application of new technologies that really augment the sales, sales rep's job is just removing that manual task from their plate. And I could envision a world where the AI gets so advanced that it could in some ways replace the sales rep, but I don't think it's going to replace them completely because the sales rep will then fill other types of roles. The, 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 the job description of the sales rep will begin to change to evolve with the times, but people are still going to want, in many cases, that be able to talk to an actual person to guide them over the line because the AI may not understand the nuances of every use case a particular prospective customer could have, at least not today. But I definitely agree with the, the augmentation of that role by applying AI and that's happening right now. We had, a, so we had someone reach out the other day to me, um, they're a user of our product and they, they're also in a sales training school that we're partnered with called FlockJ. And they asked, do you think that AI is going to replace my job or replace parts of my job? And I said, it's already happening. Like we're already, we're, the product that you're using, Lavender is already doing that. When I was a sales rep five, 10 years ago, a lot of the stuff that Lavender's doing for you, I had to do manually. Even something as basic as verifying email addresses. I used to have to go to a website, type in the email address and figure out, is it a valid email address or not? And Lavender just does that as soon as you put in someone's email address. So even those basic things are already being replaced with technology. So sales reps that are entering the sales game today, they don't, what they think is basic and like the status quo is a massive step forward than what it was even five years ago in the amount of things that they don't have to do manually. That's obviously really exciting. And I think that it is the case that it's like one of those things where when you initially look at it, like, oh, it's going to take away all these jobs. But a lot of the research does show and has shown previously over other industrial revolutions that there's always some sort of rebalancing, new jobs arise, more mm -hmm. interesting work. Um, which is obviously super interesting. The, the one thing I wanted to point out with respect to sales is this idea of you know B2B versus B2C because in B2C, the sales role has, well, it has definitely diminished a lot more than in the B2B realm. People love to shop online, at least in my understanding. Um, whereas B2B, it seems to still focus more so on the salesperson. Why do you think that is? And uh, do you think that's a trend that will continue or do you think B2B will follow in the footsteps of B2C? I don't think it's a trend that will continue. I think that's how it is today because it's how it's always been done. But I think just like I mentioned earlier with the shift toward millennials and Gen Z moving into decision-making roles, that's going to change. Um, 
we look at it as the consumerization of B2B. And for those that don't know, B2B is business to business and B2C is business to consumer. So something like TikTok is B2C, where something like Lavender on the surface is B2B because it's a business use case we're selling the businesses. We don't think of ourselves that way. When we first started building Lavender, kind of the directive to the team was let's build business software like we were building a consumer product. So we're pulling in inspiration from dating apps, we're pulling in inspiration from mobile games, from social networks, like where do people spend massive amounts of their time every day? And how can we pull insights away from that to make our users have a really comfortable and engaging experience in our platform? And I think the mistake that people are making is this idea that B2B is not B2C. Although I'm selling to a business, within that business, I'm selling to an individual or a handful of individuals who are the C, they're the consumer. And if you are looking at it as B2B and the, I'm selling to a business, it's kind of like this, this it's umbrella term for a bunch of people within an organization. So we're looking at it the other way, like we're making business software, but our end user, the person who's making a decision is a consumer. So let's build for that consumer. We're building a business use case, but a consumer product is how we're thinking about it. And again, it's, it's called the consumerization of B2B. And you see other companies doing similar things like Slack, which is a B2B product, but their focus is on the consumer, that individual user. Yeah, that's, I actually never thought about the way, but that makes a lot of sense when you, when you do say like that. And um, I guess the idea is that not just for, not just in the way you've explained it, but you know, the salesperson will go on to use Lavender to email uh, another consumer. And so in that sense, it's more of an indirect B to C as well. So that's interesting. Um, the sort of last question going back to features is, you know, I've, as we've spoken about today, there's been so many features added to Lavender. Um, and as you look towards the the future, how do you, as the sort of person who's responsible for setting the vision, prioritize those features and how do you adjust accordingly? Is it a matter of, um, constantly evaluating which features provide the most value? Do you take more of a holistic approach? How do you see your role shifting in that extent as you move forward? So the old adage in startups is you just focus on one thing and, and do it really, really well. And for us, that means helping our users get a reply. We've had some pushback. Like I remember one investor in particular, they did not invest in us. They said, you've got all these things in your product. You need to focus on just one of them. And there, for example, on the email assistant or the email grade. And our response to them, and I full, fully believe this, is a lot of things go into getting a reply. You can't get a reply if they don't open the email. You can't get a reply if the email address is invalid. You're not going to get a reply in most cases if it's not mobile optimized. So we have mobile optimization in the platform. All these things are minor components of what makes a great email that people positively respond to. So while it looks like Lavender has all these features, they're all there for a purpose. And that end purpose is helping our users write better emails that get more replies and do it in less time. But whenever we are considering a new feature or new advancement in the product, we compare it against those two vectors, better and faster. Does this feature help our users write a better email and or does it help them write an email faster? And that's what everything is measured against. So I think as you keep seeing us develop the product more, it's 
it's going to fall under those two categories where we're taking our existing suite of tools and they're getting more integrated. They're starting to talk to each other more than the product. And that data is getting used to automate more things for our users. Again, just to focus on them writing better emails. And by better, we define that as getting more positive replies and writing emails faster. Yeah. And I mean, I use, I tend to use Lavender a bit too, and I have noticed all the features, but each of them does serve a purpose. You know, you can see how many times a person's open their email, even what time zone they're in when they do open your email. Um, all these little features play a role, and I, I definitely agree with your sentiment there. So the last two things I wanted to ask more about AI as a whole, and we've spoken about this a bit, but the first thing is, what is your biggest fear or doubt around artificial intelligence looking ahead to the future? I think my biggest fear is that it doesn't actually integrate into our lives in a way that, that makes it in massively helpful. I think a lot of people fear these doomsday scenarios, which I do too, but those are out of my control. I think AI in the hands of the wrong people or of the wrong government or state actors or nefarious groups could be really bad especially as you're thinking about things like cyber warfare, et cetera. I think we have some of those things happening already, but that's not within my realm of influence. Can't do much about that. Just hope for the best. What I'm worried about as a consumer is that AI gets siphoned off into these lucrative business experiences, but they aren't actually helping my day-to-day -day life get better. Like for example, Siri, I'm always disappointed in how effective Siri is. And I'm sure it'll get better over time, but I think people are expecting AI to be this magic, magic thing that happens overnight and it's gonna take a long time. So I really hope that AI gets to a point where it's really ubiquitous within, the, within your life and makes life so much more seamless. And I hope it's done within, within my lifetime. But as far as like the big doomsday scenarios about AI, I'm aware of them but they're not things they really focus on because again, they're outside of the realm of my control. Yeah, that's a good way of thinking about it. I mean, we can't obviously do anything about it, so why even bother putting any time thinking about it? Um, on the flip side, what is, what is your biggest excitement about AI, whether it be in a specific area like sales or just in general, anything else you've seen that you're like, that's really cool? Yeah, so in general, my, my excitement about AI is just what can be done to simplify my life or make my life more efficient. Um, I, so anyone that's innovating in, in that realm, I think is really exciting. And I don't have a specific example of that, but I'm really excited about things like smart homes. It's one of the things that I'm most excited about, just my home understanding what I need to do at what time and just having it done for me, I think is really exciting. Same for like virtual assistants, not virtual assistants you hire, but like Siri or things like that. I think that's gonna get way more intelligent as they keep building these technologies. And I'm excited for that. Like there's no reason that they shouldn't be able to understand me, my calendar, my patterns of movement and just optimize my life for me in a more automated way. I think that's really exciting. So things that just simplify and make my life more streamlined are the things that I'm personally the most interested in. 
But I think outside of that, there's a lot of opportunity in AI for things like medicine, like reducing errors in, in medical diagnoses, because there's no way that it's a lot of things are changing really quickly in medicine. So it, it's hard for an individual doctor to stay like up to speed on everything in, in a very precise way and things are going to get missed. And you got to like rely on have I selected a good doctor or not? And sometimes you don't really know. But if the AI assistant is there to to assist, obviously, like there's going to be lower margin for errors. So I'm really excited about that. I'm also really excited about self-driving cars. I think they're getting a lot of pushback because there's uh, injury or death here or there, but compared to the irregular human driving, it's so much lower. And personally, I don't really like to drive that much. I'd rather just be able to sit in my car on a phone call or doing work or something. And I'm excited for that. Like a commute with a self-driving car is one of the things that I'm most excited about. So there's things that streamline and simplify. For sure. But also medicine. Yeah, there's a couple of things there. Um, with mm -hmm. medicine, yeah, I mean, I would definitely recommend anyone interested in the applications of AI and medicine to read Deep Medicine. It's an amazing book. Um, they talk a lot about like wearable technology, the future of that, um, and more mm -hmm. importantly, just physician-patient interactions, which I'm not sure about the US, but at least in Canada have, um, I think the average time a, a doctor used to spend with a new patient was an hour. Follow-ups were 30 minutes. Now it's down to 12 minutes for a new patient. and seven wow. minutes for a follow-up and most of that's just them typing away on a keyboard so mm -hmm. a lot of opportunity there and of course with uh self-driving cars as well but i mean we've gone a bit over time we've covered a lot of different stuff uh it's been awesome catching up with you and learning about all the cool things lavender is doing um do you want to let our audience know where they can learn more about lavender and perhaps make use of that student plan that you mentioned which i'm sure a lot of them would find a lot of use in? Totally. So again, I'm William Balance, um, co-founder and CEO of Lavender. If you're interested in Lavender, just go to trylavender.com and all the information is there. Again, the website is really tailored to salespeople, which are our primary business case or user, but the principles behind Lavender are going to be beneficial in any sort of written communication, especially email, where you're trying to get the other person to take some sort of action or respond positively. So I would think of it in ways you could use it for talking to your professors or administrators at your school, administrators or recruiters or people you're applying for jobs with. I mean, we've had users who wrote it, write, wrote their cover letter with it. So I think there are a lot of applications. And if you're a student or you've already graduated and you're looking for a job, you can just send us an email, team at trylavender.com and we'll upgrade your account to a pro plan. Or you can just DM me on Twitter or at, at mbalance, M as in man, B-A-L-L-A-N-C-E, or even Instagram. My Instagram's WMB as in boy, one, WMB one. So DM me or email us, we'll upgrade your account. Yeah, I mean, that's awesome. I would definitely, I mean, I didn't even know about that, so I'm probably going to go ahead and do that. Yeah, man. Um, but I'll definitely recommend everyone to do that. I've used Lavender since the beginning, and I've seen the huge strides that you guys have taken. It's really exciting to see mm -hmm. where you guys will take it in the next couple months in the future. So thanks again. Next month, next month we're launching, I think, one of our biggest updates. Every update we release is our biggest update ever, but next month is really big. So you might remember last summer we built... One of the main projects last summer was building a dashboard, an analytics dashboard, so users can track their progress over time. And as the product kept progressing, 
we've added so many more features. We're looking at so much more data that the dashboard we built last summer is now antiquated. It doesn't cover enough. So all this year, we've been working on a new, a new analytics dashboard and it's evolved into a full coaching studio. It's coming out in July. In the sales world, there's a company called Gong. Gong does analytics and coaching for phone calls and sales. And we're essentially building many parts of what they're doing are similar to it for email, where Lavender begins to understand for you as an individual, what works really well for you or for your team, what doesn't work, what you're good at, what you're bad at, and it will just adjust the scoring to what works best for you in your specific situation and learns all about how to make you a better professional emailer, a more effective emailer. So that's coming out next month. And I agree, I agree, John. Uh, whenever I look back at last summer and see how far the team has, has progressed on the product, it's amazing. Sometimes I'll just pull up old screenshots of our old product and show it to the team. And everyone's really amazed at, at how far they've come and how far the product has come. But uh, again, going back to earlier, how do we, how has that happened? And you got to really surround yourself with ambitious, smart, dedicated people. And I've been really fortunate to have had that with our team. Can't end off better than that. Uh, thanks again, Will. And everyone, make sure you check out Lavender. I would highly recommend it. And hopefully it helps you out like it's uh, helped me out and everyone else. So yeah, thanks. Thanks, John. The Tech Tidbits podcast is produced and edited by Cindy Wen with music from the Unicorn Heads. If you wish to stay up to date on all upcoming episodes, check us out on our socials. Our Instagram handle is Tech Tidbits Pod and our LinkedIn page is The Tech Tidbits Podcast. We hope to see you back here for the next episode. And until then, take care and all the best.